Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. This is the 200th episode. What a journey it's been. It's been so incredible to talk with authors and leaders who have really impacted my own mothering. But here we are with really for me, the woman I talk about the most, the very, 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 very most, Angela Hanscom, author of Balanced and Barefoot and founder of Timbernook. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And wow, 200 episodes. That's incredible. That's exciting. And you were on right near the very beginning. And I would say, Angela, that when I talk to other people, if I'm on another interview or some other situation like that, you're the name that comes up the most. This Balanced and Barefoot book. I mean, and I talk about other authors here and there, but yours is every time, pretty much every time is Angela Hanscom, this book, Balanced and Barefoot. I tell everyone, it is a book that every parent and every educator should read. It's comprehensive, but it's an easy read too. It's interesting, it's fascinating. And so I've gone back to it so many times over the past years, but in preparation for this interview, because this is the second time we've talked, I actually read it twice. So I read it again and there is so, I mean, I read it for the first time from the perspective of a parent. I just picked up your book. I wasn't doing 1000 hours outside. I wasn't doing any of this. I just picked your book up and it was so validating to me. I learned so much from it. And now I'm reading it from the perspective of preparing for an interview. And I really cannot sing its praises enough and the work that you've done to help children. So thank you so much for this and for taking the time to be with us. What a treat. I know, yay. (laughs) I never would have thought I got to meet you now a couple of times. So what a cool thing. I'd love to focus on this one, and I don't know, I think it's hard sometimes to talk about the negative things, but also I think it's important, and I talked to someone recently, Angela, a a young man who's 20 years old, and he talks basically about the social wasteland of his childhood, very grieved, very grieved about his childhood, no one to play with, so excited to play, but everyone's on their screens, and you go through in your book a lot of issues that have arisen a lot of common problems, then you give hope. You say for a lot of them, the small change of spending more time outside can help. But I think it's important to know that some of these struggles that children are having are newer, that they're very pervasive and they didn't used to be. So can we start there? Can you talk about what is going on with childhood today? What is What's happening? They're needing services. They have developmental delays. Can you just hit a couple of the bigger ones that you've seen that have changed over the past few decades? Yeah, absolutely. And really, it's just play deprivation, like not having enough playtime is really affecting kids in all different ways, I guess, in ways that we never expected. It's really sad if you think about it, but it's, it is important to recognize because, you know, as a healthcare professional, I was always taught in my ethics classes to do no harm. And we're at the point where our environment has changed so much (laughs) that it's actually affecting harm to children and causing problems that maybe wouldn't appear if they were getting plenty of outdoor playtime like we did years past. So, I mean, one that is really kind of a core issue and I talk about a lot is that even just moving is being restricted, that they're constantly in an upright position. The most recent research is that kids are sitting in a chair nine hours a day. That's a lot of sitting. What happens is certain muscles will shorten that shouldn't be shortened and certain muscles will lengthen that shouldn't be. And so it will affect gait and it will affect their posture. 
But also because they're in the upright position, they're not moving in vigorous ways. And really our bodies were designed to move a lot, spin in circles, go upside down and do all these things that might make adults fearful or afraid. But those are the things that actually need to happen for children to have a really good sense of body awareness and to be able to navigate their environment safely. So ironically, like out of fear, we're trying to restrict them, but we really need to allow them to even just roll down the hill, helps them to know where their body is in space when navigating. That's just one thing. So there's the physical side of things Mm -hmm. and we can dive into that if you want, but then there's also the social piece you mentioned. So I have two teenage girls now and mm-hmm. now experiencing some of the like um, social awkwardness that some children are presenting. And, you know, a lot of kids just spending time on screens and then feeling, um, I think the pandemic made it worse, like hiding behind masks and mm. being separated from their children just took it to a whole different level. And so these kids are preferring to be alone and then feeling mm-hmm. even more lonely and separated. And so that that takes courage <laughs> and like practice to be in real situations with other children in order to overcome those fears. But if we keep allowing them to like stay on a screen or stay away from other kids, it becomes harder to take those risks, those emotional risks and connect mm-hmm. with other children. Yeah, people pick up your book, you realize that there is so much going on here because you talk about, I think, a lot of common problems. I hear moms say a lot of times, like, oh, my child is getting in trouble in school. They're fidgeting. They are not paying attention. And we do a lot of these different types of behavioral management things, but it's not helping. you write. maybe you're, and these are the things that people talk about. You're getting a report that your sweet and considerate child is starting to push with too much force. Your child is clumsy. Your child can't wear these different clothes. Your child is easily upset in new situations. So all of these things are happening. But what you do is you bridge it back. You help parents and teachers understand that these aren't really isolated things. A lot of them go hand in hand with this play deprivation. So can we just take one of those? Let's talk about one example, which would be the clumsy. And that goes back to the physical that kids are running into walls. They're falling out of their chairs. They can't hold themselves upright. This is affecting their academic work because they're having to put so much attention in sitting in the seat. How does that relate back with, and the fidgeting, how does that relate back with lack of movement and lack of play? Yeah. Okay. So we'll go a little deeper. So it goes back to kids just not moving enough, basically, right? So what really needs to happen is kids need to move in vigorous ways, right? We've talked about that. So spinning in circles, going upside down, rolling down the hill. And the reason why is because in the inner ear are little hair cells and there's fluid in there. And when we move in vigorous ways, it stimulates those hair cells and develops what we call the vestibular sense. And that sense is key to all the other senses. It's actually the unifying sense for what we call sensory integration, which is organization of the brain so kids can learn and pay attention in class. And so a couple things that does is the first thing having plenty of movement does is it helps a child to know where their body is in space to get from point A to point B safely, stay in your seat without falling out, Mm -hmm. you know, be able to get on and off playground equipment effectively. And the way we treat that as occupational therapists in a clinic setting is we'll put them on a swing and we'll actually position them in all different directions and we spin them. Mm -hmm. And so that really helps them, again, to know where their body is in space. And we actually have created this thing called an astronaut board. 
and OT developed this training in conjunction with NASA because when astronauts, before they go in outer space, they get in this big machine and they move in all different directions. So when they go into an anti-gravity environment, they really know where their body is in space. And so we do the same thing as occupational therapists. We use the swings and also those boards. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll see an adult say, don't spin because you're going to get dizzy or get down from that tree because you're going to get hurt. But when we constantly keep them from moving in those different ways, then we become the barrier to that neurological development and they become actually unsafe in their environment. So, you know, I've worked one-on-one with the child way back before Tim Renuck or around the time where Tim Renuck started. Um, I was doing OT outdoors. I completely abandoned that, by the way, because I felt like Tim Renuck could work on stuff I could not replicate one-on-one with a child. The other mm-hmm. children inspired play in ways I couldn't as an adult. But anyway, it was working with a child on the swing. And I said, I want you to stand on the swing, you know, and she's like, Miss Angie, that is so dangerous. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting that she said that. But um, then Mm -hmm. I said, when you go to school, I want you to spin because again, it helps you know where your body is in space. She went to school and the next week she came back and she said, I, they won't allow me to spin on the swings. She said, um, you know, it's a new rule at recess time. So I talked to the recess monitor and she said, it's true. We're not allowing kids to even, you know, not, they're not allowed to stand on it. They're not allowed to spin and they're not even allowed to go on their bellies. I found that really ironic because as occupational therapists, we try to get them out of that upright position mm-hmm. into different position, anti-gravity position to challenge the senses in order to advance and get more organized, right? And so here we are trying to keep them safe, mm-hmm. but at the world of occupational therapy and healthcare, we purposely do those things to make those children more capable in their environments. So I felt that the educational system and the healthcare system really need to work together in order to provide healthy environments for children. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating when you read your book and you think about recess. So I remember having long recess. I remember having all sorts of play equipment. And I really wonder, I wonder what the history is of playgrounds because the original playground equipment, it's like for some reason, they really understood children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They really understood the needs of children. like to have this risky play, to climb high, to hang upside down. I mean, that's what we did as kids. And I wasn't even very athletic. So I would hang, but I remember hanging upside down on the monkey bars, letting go of my arms and flipping my legs and landing on my feet. I remember all that stuff. And I wasn't in, my friends who were in gymnastics, they were way better at it, but I could still do a lot of that stuff. And I remember just hanging upside down and swinging back and forth with my legs crossed. And so this is an interesting thing to think, this isn't allowed anymore. And so what's happening in the playgrounds and with the recess time that's really starting to affect our children in their development? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the playgrounds because I wrote an article for the Playground magazine. This was maybe five or six years ago, but they were developed in, I don't know, maybe the early 80s for safety. And she's like, we're just as frustrated as everybody else. You know, you can write whatever you want. And I talked about the vestibular system and how when we, you know, we've gone and changed our playgrounds, right? We shorten slides, we shorten swings, and it's really just basic physics. You're going to get less sensory input and you're less likely to create change in the child. That was really interesting that even the playgrounds were saying we've gone too far with mm-hmm. safety. 
The other thing that's interesting is they've taken a lot of things away, like the merry ground, right? The merry ground, teeter-totters. And one day, again, I was treating a child outside with a swing. We use a lot of swings. So mm-hmm. we were. I was spinning this child. And now I'm in the center. So I'm the one spinning and they're on the outside. Mm-hmm. So their head is away from me. And what that does, if you look in our OT books, is it creates a centripetal force in the inner ear and bends the hair cells in one direction. Mm-hmm. And that in our OT books works on grounding and sustained attention. And I was like, wow. oh my gosh, this is like the merry ground where you're on the outside holding on for dear life and you're getting that centripetal force which happens to be the most powerful vestibular input you can give a child. So like we're trained to be really mindful of using that technique because it can, it has a lasting effect and kids really need to determine what they're ready for. But it was, I thought it was interesting. It worked on grounding and sustained attention and it's so powerful, but yet we've taken it away due to fear. Mm -hmm. Due to litigation sometimes, right? Litigation, always fear. Mm -hmm. Well, what's so interesting, this is the most interesting thing about it to me. All of these things, you know, we talk about this is in the OT book, and now we know about this centrifugal force and the ears, and we know these things. But kids, they do it on their own without, without being told, without the knowledge that this is so good for my development. They do all those things naturally. Yes. And it's almost like we as adults, we're starting to try and catch up. Like, mm. oh, you know, we don't want this litigation, but now we're thinking like, oh no, wait, we need to work our way back to these things that helped our kids with their development that they just do all on their own. And you talk about that a lot in your book, this sort of innateness of it. Children have an innate curiosity. They have a desire to move. You say, children know what they need. How can that possibly be true? <laughs> yeah, it's part of our training too, as, as therapists. Like we are supposed to, Again, if I'm going in a clinic setting, we're supposed to follow the lead of the child because their sensory systems are designed to seek out what they need at any given time. We have to be very mindful of that. So like if I'm taking a kid and sticking them on something they're not ready for and spinning them, they can feel like they're going to throw up, (laughs) like they're going to be overwhelmed or, you know, some kids are very, very sensitive and they can't even tolerate a swing. We have to really let the child lead. And I think when we get in trouble is not providing any opportunities to be able to seek what they need when they need it. The environments are off. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. It can be risky for an adult to control how much sensory input a child gets. And you and I are in the same spot. We have teenagers now too. So our oldest is just starting to drive. And so this is when I say I went back and I read the book a second time, I've always been going back to it for little bits here and there. But when I read it through a second time, there were things that jumped out at me now that I have teens. Like I read it when I had young kids and now we've got teenagers. So one of the things you talk about is that we can become barriers to healthy child development. You said that earlier, we're restricting, we're restricting. And you wrote, later when the children are older and get behind the wheel of a car, they may not have the skills necessary to safely navigate the roads. Yeah. So you're gonna get there at some point. You know, if you've got little children at some point, that's where we're at. We're behind the wheel of a car. And so you want your kids to be able to have these quick brains and you want them to be able to react quickly and all of those things. And that's starting from when they're kids, little kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I believe it's not yet yeah, physical is really important. And I, but I believe also the mental health piece and the social and all that, like 
having plenty of practice in situations with other children and playing with other kids is like fundamental to interpersonal skills, right? Like it's really hard to not get that. And then all of a sudden, like have the skills you need if you're all of a sudden out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside 120. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just 2 minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so there's a lot here that's going on for our kids that we need to think about. So one of the ones as well is just their immune system. There's also an increase of asthma and allergies and eczema that didn't exist. And so you talk about just our immune response. So can you explain why going outside helps both for that and also this lymphatic system. So we're in back to school time. A lot of kids get sick. Maybe a lot of that is because they're sitting for nine hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movement just in general will help the fluid move in the lymphatic system. And it's just healthier to keep moving when you're sick. But, you know, digging in the dirt and being outside and exposed to different textures, all that, it's just it's healthier. It makes robust, more robust children. I remember it like COVID was really interesting because like we went kind of, we went backwards again, right? With over sterilizing everything. And one thing I was so thankful mm-hmm. for 
with our program is that we didn't have to worry about that. We didn't have to sanitize the dirt. We didn't have to like, you know, like, so we were able to protect that for children because that's how you boost your immune system is being outdoors. Mm -hmm. And all that movement. Can you Mm -hmm. explain to people what, what you do at Timbernook? What does a day look like at Timbernook? Yeah. Yeah. So really, um, First of all, the mission of Timbernook is to restore the occupation of outdoor play and to make it as rich as possible and as authentic as possible, because outdoor play is a really important occupation that really is at risk, as we know, right? And so there's all these techniques that we use in order to make sure it's as as authentic as possible. We provide, yeah, different play experiences, basically. And the environment is just designed to inspire a higher level of play. The adults actually have to step back, which is really, really a critical component of that. And Mm -hmm. I think we can, maybe we can talk about this later, but it's one of the hardest things for adults to do is being like, okay, like stepping back, but also tuning in, observing and knowing when to go in and when not to in different play scenarios and why that's really important. A simple example of a play experience might be that they hear the story Three Little Pigs, and then there'd be real bales of hay out there, real bricks, real sticks, maybe wolf masks and pulleys. And so then they have the opportunity to play and build their own Three Little Pig homes, or they might not. They might decide to like make traps for wolves, but it's really just an inspiration because because a lot of children are not giving enough practice initiating a play idea and then executing that play. They're needing some sort of inspiration to launch them. The other really cool factor is that it's like true neighborhood play. So it's a big mixture of ages and Peter Gray talks about this a lot, but having that is a huge strength. There's children of all different abilities out there too. So we'll have a child with special needs, different needs, different challenges and strengths out there. And they help each other, inspire each other to do things that they might not normally do um, in other situations. Um, So that's also a really beautiful thing. For instance, like if I, because I'm an occupational therapist, sometimes people will get confused and think, oh, is this for kids just with special needs? But I feel like the real world is children of all different abilities. Like you wouldn't take all the kids that uh, have trouble with social skills and make a group around it because you're going to need a lot more adult interaction. But if you have a child that might have trouble with social skills and then you have children with more advanced language skills, model that for children, bring them into uh, higher levels of play. That is so powerful. And the research states that that peer modeling is way more effective than an adult going in and directing. Mm-hmm. So I've seen some of the pictures at Timbernook. It makes you want to f- come. Yeah. You have locations worldwide. Yeah. How many locations? Uh, I want to say at least 50 um, wow. and then at least uh, 10 schools, I think. Yeah. Okay. So all sorts of locations and parents will drop their child off for X amount of hours. This is a long period of time. So I like what you said just a second ago. This is for every kid because a lot of it is preventative. Yes. And you talk about that in your book as well, that we're going down this path where kids are really struggling. You get that sense from your book, struggling. And this was written in 2016. So, you know, we're seven years later here and we are seeing the struggles, like you said, in mental health, anxiety, worry, the clothes that we wear, the the foods that we can eat, all these different things. And Mm -hmm. This outdoor play starting at a young age can be something that helps kids to maybe not have some of these different problems. So they come for a long time. 
So how long might a child come and be at, at a Timbernook location or do it through the schools? Well, we usually recommend at least two hours for school. So typically schools will do a two hour time block during the school day for Timbernook. And for like private programming or community programming, it's usually at least three hours, mm-hmm. you know, just because it figure, you know, it takes time to figure out who am I going to play with? What am I going to play? And then to dive deep into that play scheme and work on all the stuff that we really want them to work on, mm-hmm. um, the social, emotional and, you know, higher level thinking skills and that kind of stuff. They need the time for it. Tell mm-hmm. us real quick, because I know you had a video that just came out about a school that mm-hmm. is doing the Timberneck program. And... Mm-hmm. How has that turned out? It's a real cool story. Yeah. Yeah. So Laconia Christian Academy is a certified Timbernook school that is about 45 minutes from us. And they've been doing Timbernook for five years. And last year they spoke for at our Timbernook conference and had such a powerful testimony. Um, So we decided to record their testimony and share it with everyone because it's so interesting because so many schools are in the process of taking away recess or cutting the amount of playtime at school. And the school has completely done the opposite. So they've taken Timbernook and they had two hours of Timbernook a week for every single grade from pre-K through fifth grade. And year two, they loved it so much that they increased it to five hours of Timbernook time a week which is a lot of, this is a very academic oriented school too. It's, and so for them to do five hours of Timbernook during the school week for each grade was a huge testimony. And they said mm-hmm. they looked at the data and that it didn't, their test scores did not decrease. If anything, it increased and that the kids were healthier, happier, full of joy. And you can listen to the testimony from the teachers. Like some teachers got one over, they were doubtful about it. You know, there's a physical therapist talking about how it was working on all these different skills that, again, it's hard for us to replicate in a clinic setting. Mm. Yeah. So definitely watch that if you get a chance. I think it's so funny because a lot of schools will, out of fear, take away recess and the school did the opposite. And not only did they protect their Timberic time, like if they have a field trip, they keep their Timberic time and have a field trip that week. And they increase recess from half an hour to a full hour every single day on top of Timbernook. I've got chills. Change is happening. Change is happening. And you know what? I have to say this. I was a teacher. That is a hard job. That is an exhausting job. You have to be on from the moment the kids come to the moment the kids leave. And then afterward, the parents are emailing you. You're having to plan for the next day. It never stops. It's like a train that is barreling forward. And so here is this thing that is helping the children all that Timbernook time, five hours plus their hour recess. And also it's giving the teachers a chance to catch their breath, which I think is really important too. So it's doing something for everyone. So if people want to find out more about that, that's going to be in the YouTube video. People can go to Timbernook.com and find out how to become a Timbernook school. But this component of it needs to be a long period of time. And you and I relate, like you wrote in this book, and I don't know, I have, this is the most notes I've ever had on a book. I've got 15 pages here. So this, this like, is really kind of counterintuitive. It's not working out well for me. But you had written in, the, in this book, In Balanced and Barefoot, you and I kind of parented the same way at the beginning. Oh, I found it. You said, when my daughter was a young toddler, I constantly chased after her trying to make sure she was safe. We got busy, really busy, driving to preschool gymnastics, soccer, music class, and a mom's group. I don't recall taking my daughter outside to play that much. 
In my mind, we were too busy to sacrifice our precious time in nature. And I think that's the sentiment of most parents. That was my sentiment. It was always a last thing. Like, oh, if we've got a half hour, we'll swing by the playground. But we have completely changed the way that we do childhood. Why are we misled when we think we're too busy for outdoor time? I I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because not only as parents do we say we're too busy, the teachers are, you know, the schools are saying the same thing, right? Think about it. Like they're saying we're too busy to sacrifice academics for this. But what's actually the truth is that this time for children has so much worth and endless potential. And I think that sometimes maybe it sounds like it's too good to be true or, you know, well, it's just play, but there's incredible value in it. And I think we need to get our priorities in order. And so we need to bring that back up Mm -hmm. and make sure that we protect it. Well, and that's what you've done. People are just, they don't know. That's what you say in your book. Like we're coming at it from a spot of being well-intentioned. We don't want our kids to get hurt. We don't want them to fall. We don't want them to break an arm. We want to make sure that they're ready for maybe college or post high school work. We're well-intentioned, but we're wrong. Yeah. We're wrong. And that's what your book does. I think so well is it opens the eyes. I mean, I had no idea. I just didn't know. You know, you think because everyone else is enrolling for this and enrolling for that, you think, oh, well, yeah, I mean, this kid's got to be in French immersion class and we've got to make sure that we're doing Suzuki violin and all of these different things. But we, we don't know that this outdoor play, free, active play is doing so much for all of their development and they need a long time. So mm-hmm. time and time again, you say in this book, daily, daily, hours a day, even for older kids. So you talk about three hours a day. You have a whole chart in there. What do you say to parents who are like, well, I don't have time for that? Or schools who say, we don't have enough time for that. What do you, what do you tell people? Yeah. Um, yeah, at least three hours a day. I would say that you might not understand it now, but it will be worth it in the long run. It's so interesting because like, even as a therapist, we do this, like <laughs> we go and we're like, I'm going to work on fine motor skills and we'll get out a little activity and work on just one component of the child. We compartmentalize things. Whereas if you go out and you watch a Tim Bernick experience or you watch kids you know, at recess, they're working on multiple things at once. Multiple senses are engaged. So much more is happening and it's in the context of the real world. And so that's going to generalize over into other real world situations. A little example of that is we had a little boy come to Timberlake one time that was really struggling with, he didn't want to go to the mud puddles because he, he didn't want to like get barefoot and stuff. So he had plastic welly boots on. He's like, I know we're going there. I'm not taking these off. And I'm like, that's fine. So he went down Mm -hmm. and what happened was um, kids were catching frogs and he got visibly excited. He was like, oh, like, so he went right in and he ended up, the water went in his boots and he had socks on, which Mm -hmm. feels really gross. So he came back out and he's like, can I please take this off? This is, you know, yucky. So he took off the shoes and socks, went right back in and started catching frogs. And it was interesting because we were videoing it and we talked to the mother later and we're like, he went barefoot catching frogs. And she goes, do you know, he had been working in a clinic setting two years trying to go barefoot in these plastic bounce beams. Again, that's not, you know, real life, but unsuccessful. 
And here he is in giant mud puddles catching frogs. And so what was interesting is then he later on, because it's a real environment, he started going barefoot camping and, and generalizing over into other environments. Now, if I had said, no, I think you should take those shoes off, you know, what do you think would have happened? Mm-hmm. So often that when kids have sensory issues, there's anxiety tied to that. So it was a choice. True play is a choice, right? And that was so motivating. That frog, catching a frog was so motivating, it trumped his fear. And he was able to overcome whatever challenges on his own. And he, again, he regulated when he was ready for it. But Mm -hmm. we allowed the opportunity to do so without putting extra pressure on him. Mm -hmm. And that's what you say. There's just not the opportunity anymore. That's what we've taken away. And they need a lot of time to be able to work into it. And that makes a lot of sense, even for an adult. Sometimes when you're in a new situation, you need time. You need time to acclimate. And so you say in this book, 60 minutes of movement a day is not enough. Mm -hmm. Children need to move for hours every day in order to reap the sensory, cognitive, and health benefits. This is important for parents to know. It's a restructuring of how mm-hmm. we do childhood. I say now, childhood is not for homework. Yeah. Because if you're already at school for six or seven hours, that's enough. There are other components of the kids that need to be worked on that are so important. You just brought up the gross motor. Mm-hmm. So I figured we could pop there for a second because you talk about, you, well, you brought up the fine motor. And so you talk about the gross motor can sometimes precede the fine motor. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the gross motor things are happening outside the seasons. I love it. This different seasons, if you live in a place where the seasons change, promote all this different type of work, of heavy work. Mm-hmm. So can you explain, because you talked about the vestibular sense, mm-hmm. but the proprioceptive sense mm-hmm. has to deal with the push and pull on our joints. Can you explain why that's important and how that helps kids with their development? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll hear occupational therapists prescribe heavy work for children um, a lot. And what that is, is push-pull activities, right? So it's interesting because one day I was thinking about this and I'm like, they're getting a lot of it when they're outdoors naturally, right? So like I'll watch kids out in Timbernook and they'll pick up a giant pallet and they'll start lugging it because they want to build a fort. And so they're lugging it all the way across the woods. And when they pick up heavy things, they're getting nice resistance to the joints and muscles. And that's really important because it helps you know where your limbs are in relation to each other. But it also helps to know how much force to use when playing games like tag without hitting too hard, writing with a pencil without breaking the lead every time. Or maybe they're not writing hard enough, holding a frog without squeezing the thing (laughs) or a baby Mm -hmm. chick. And it's funny because, again, at school, a lot of schools are starting to ban tag because kids are hitting with so much force. And so I've heard many schools talk about implementing special rules like two finger touch rules when they play tag um one mm-hmm. principal said they can hit with pool noodles which i don't know how that helps with with that but or banning it completely and so mm-hmm. instead of taking things away again um, and deeming them like well kids can't handle it we really want to understand well why is this happening why are all these kids presenting with issues that maybe wouldn't have been presenting with these issues years past. Mm -hmm. And so again, um, if you think about outdoor play, like digging in the dirt, getting that heavy work does help with the joints and muscles. Mm -hmm. The other thing is touch. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah. But like a lot of kids don't want to get glue in their fingers or they don't want to get dirty. Mm -hmm. And that is because again, a lot of these kids aren't getting enough heavy work. So 
sometimes if you, if you just, you know, you're climbing a tree, you feel sap, um, it can feel gross, but be, the heavy work actually helps to override that light touch sense that can feel aversive. When you're climbing a tree, if you feel sap, you're also getting deep pressure, which will help to integrate that light touch sense and override that for children. Um, the same is true as if you're playing on the beach, you know, those little sand boxes, I don't know if you've ever seen those sensory boxes. Mm-hmm. So with that, they're just stimulating light touch. They're not digging deep to override that. Whereas on the beach, it's different because you have a bigger space. And usually when you're building sandcastles, you're getting that light touch, but you're also getting resistance as you dig. And so that deep pressure helps override that light touch sense and integrate it so that they start being able to tolerate different textures over time, but mm-hmm. they need to have that heavy work involved with it. Same with like building a fort. Your hands might get dirty when you're building a fort, but you're getting heavy work to integrate that light touch sense. Mm-hmm. And this is happening throughout the seasons. Like I always think about it in the winter with the snow shoveling. And I think about it with building a snowman yeah. that they're having to lift those huge and they're pushing, you know, they're making yeah. these huge balls of snow and they're pushing and they're heaving yeah. this shovel full of snow and it's heavy and it's wet and it's just enticing. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't have to ask a kid to make a snowman. Yeah, They love it. Little ones. I mean, they want the shovel. So it's just a fascinating thing. Isn't it Angie that these kids, they know it's innately in them. And I just love reading about the really like you're reading about the brilliance of a child mm-hmm. when you read your book, because you're like, oh, you know, my kid already does that. My kid already does these different things. Naturally, I don't even have to tell them. They already know. It's just really encouraging. This episode is brought to you by Better Help. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. When the skies open up, while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle 
at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I.com slash outside for 15% off your first order. So people can read more in your book about the vestibular system, the proprioceptive. One of the other things that's happening is that kids are having trouble using their eyes. So myopia is on the rise, but also this thought of using the eyes in unison for reading and tracking. What's happening with that? Yeah. And that actually has a lot to do, again, with the vestibular sense. So because we're overly restricting their ability to move, that sense also supports all six eye muscles to work as a team. And so it acts kind of like a tripod for a camera and stabilizes the eyes. And so if kids are not getting enough movement opportunities throughout the day, those eyes really need that additional support. I had a child come in to see me one time that was, um, he was holding one eye um, in school. I think he was like seven Mm -hmm. and he was really trouble having trouble reading. He could read the Snell and eye chart just fine, you know, in the nurse's office with the letters, Mm -hmm. which really just means he has good visual acuity, but doesn't mean that his eye muscles can work as a team. So hmm. he came in for treatment. I had him on that astronaut board we were talking about where I, you know, I was spinning him. Mm-hmm. And then I had him look at between two light pens from point A to point B and to see if he could track across. And every time he got to the middle, his eyes would lose control and loop like a roller coaster. So I was like, oh, can you imagine like trying to read in your eyes once you got to the middle of your body, your eyes would lose control. Mm-hmm. So I did... Um, I think it was about two weeks of vestibular treatment with him and he was able to then track and it wasn't long before he was able to read. So it's really important to remember that just plenty of movement opportunities will, again, support the eyes for reading and also for writing, you know, crossing that midline. Mm -hmm. Behavioral optometrists will work really closely with occupational therapists and they're huge advocates of movement. I've been on podcasts with them. And if you go in their office, you'll see same thing, trampolines, swings hanging from the ceiling, because they know that movement helps with visual skills as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. So much there. Also, there's more. (laughs) You talk about just stamina. Yep. Yeah. No one's got stamina. These kids don't have stamina anymore, especially in comparison to decades back. And so what happens when we have decreased stamina? Yeah, it just is really interesting. Even watching my children and they have friends come over in the beginning. They're like, oh, no, we're going to the Hanscom household (laughs) because I'm like, (laughs) go outside. Like even as teenagers, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Joel has had friends that like they're just their endurance isn't there. It's so fascinating. The more they hang out with us and seeing a year their endurance increase, but it just takes practice. It's really just more exposure to outdoor physical activity and and getting your endurance up. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you say there's a lot of ramifications. If kids don't have stamina, they can't play as long. And so it just becomes a snowball type thing. You even talked about a timber nook, how the Mm -hmm. kids wouldn't even want to walk the couple, you know, it's uphill for a couple minutes and they just don't have the stamina for that, but then they grow into it. Let's land on the teens for just a minute because we both have them. And I I am just saying, because people ask a lot of times, so what about teens? And you start to think that, well, when they hit 14, 15, like they should just be hitting the books. And I've been so encouraged because your book talks about, no, this three hours, this is for all of childhood, maybe ideally for all of life, we should be making sure that we're getting outdoors and enhancing our life. But for me with teens, this has just become a whirlwind of fun. Mm Mm-hmm because they can do so many cool things. Yeah. So what would you say to parents who are afraid and thinking, 
we've got to take this whole high school career and turn it into this academic preparation time. How would you convince them to lighten up a little bit? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I think it's so important to have a balance in life, you know, even as adults and teens, especially. It's such a um, critical age. First of all, one thing I want to say, and I get asked this a lot during when I speak, I get asked a lot, like, is there any hope for my teenager who has been kind of, Hmm. you know, like sedentary for so long? And absolutely. So you can create change to the senses for teenagers. It just takes a little bit longer. But, you know, I think when you start young, it just is so it's just so much easier, like because they get exposed to outdoors and it becomes part of who they are. But I would I would argue that it's really important to protect the time for kids to be outdoors. It just might look different. The play might look different for a teenager than it does with children. I mean, we do have a lot of 13, 14 year olds that will play. They're not done with Timbernook. Like they're creating cultures and societies out in the woods and they become leaders. And even we've had high schoolers, like they say, we want Timbernook, like <laughs> we, we want to play like that. And I think when other kids are playing like that, they, they get right into it. I've seen adults do capture the flag and you yeah. build forts and just completely forget. We've had Merrill Shoe Company, their design team come and do a Timbernook experience and they, and you forget, you, you get immersed into that world of play. Mm-hmm. But there's also like from my own children, like their play just looks different. Like they'll go off with a group of kids and go snowmobiling 50 miles. They're independent now and they, you know, or they'll go dirt biking and like, you know, take their own truck and, you know, like, um, or ice fishing. And I think it's just really important to have that because they connect most often it brings great joy, like mm-hmm. great joy. They are like, this is the best, um, you know, taking full advantage of what the outdoors can offer is, is really good. And I think it kind of keeps them out of trouble <laughs> too, to be honest, like to have sure. that outlet and connections outdoors. Yeah. Well, what you said was so interesting too, about the multi-age, like the adults coming from Merrill or the high schoolers coming. I think a lot of times we can really envision in a multi-age environment, which this is one of the huge things that Peter Gray advocates for in Free to Learn and just in all of his work. But you can think, okay, well, you could see how having an older child would really benefit a younger child. The younger child's looking up, they wanna try these different things, they're challenged. But what the younger kids do is they keep us all playing. Yeah, That's what they do for the older kids. And yeah. we've seen it too. And I think we can get together. All you need is another family or two Mm -hmm. that when you go outside and you just have a few other people and the kids don't have to be the same age, that there is so much value in getting together and playing. And as your kids get older, they do like what you say. They go ice fishing. They're playing basketball. They're doing tricks on their bike. They're skateboarding. They're still having that risky play and those vigorous play experiences that are enhancing the quality of their life and helping in that whole child development. So it's fun. I think if you've got little kids, you've got a lot to look forward to. And there is a huge payoff. That's what I'm seeing. We're doing really fun things. We're going whitewater rafting. I mean, Angie, this is fun. And it's it's because that foundation was laid. And that's just a, a side benefit is that your life will be enhanced all the way throughout their childhood if you take the time when they're younger to add in these play experiences. This got brought up at the near the beginning, and, and I'd like to circle back on it because it's something that I think permeates society. And you just talked about it. Your kids are going off and doing these different things. They're snowmobiling 50 miles. You wrote in this book, children today are under relentless supervision. Relentless. 
to some people that might think, and to myself included, I might think, well, yeah, sure. This is a great idea. Let's <laughs> supervise relentlessly. And you were talking about it's really hard for adults to take a step back. Why do we need to do that, though? That's a great question. So what I learned over the years is that if we're too close, if the adult presence is so high, let's say out Timberneck, like if I, if kids were building a fort and I'm standing right next to them, what happens over and over again is they start turning to the adult to seek constant reassurance. Is this okay? Should I do this next? Which you can probably see how this relates to life in general, right? Like, can you tell me what to do next? You know, they become very dependent on the adult to give them ideas of what to play, to solve the problems for them. So what we've learned over the years is if we backed up and reduced the adult presence out at Timbernook and we get down low and find a seat. So we're hidden, but we're watching. So we can still supervise them and go in if, if necessary the kids would start turning to each other to come up with their own play ideas, execute those play schemes, but also solve their own problems. Like if there's conflict and so learning conflict resolution and becoming, there was a lot less tattling as well. So they become more independent. I think it's so critical to do that because like we want our children to fly the coop, right? We do want them to be successful in life. And if they don't have practice, they're going to really struggle and rely on the adult to do it for them. Mm -hmm. I love you have a, it's a subtitle in the book where it says safety first equals child development later. Yeah. So this overemphasis on safety is really harming our kids for mm -hmm. the long run. And it's mm -hmm. really important to know. So you just talk about how to deal with fear and how mm -hmm. to deal with being okay with taking a step back. And I think you learn that in time. That's why if your kids are young, start now. Like you have a whole part about like get your babies outside that first year of life because what you learn is you learn little by little to let go. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of childhood is that the child is learning how to take risks and to move forward in the world little by little. And we as parents are little by little. I mean, because I think a parent would be freaked out to say, well, my kids are going to go snowmobiling 50 miles. No way. Yeah. But you can do that because you've had the experiences when they're seven, eight, nine, and 10 and two to learn that they're capable and competent. And then it enhances everyone's life. Can we end with just nature in general, like the outdoors? And you talk about how this is just such an ideal environment, really for so many reasons. One is just the variability of it. Mm -hmm. So like you talk about pond hockey, I think is such a good example pond hockey versus an indoor ice skating rink, why choose nature instead of an indoor substitute? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, yeah, when you step outdoors, you know, multiple synapses are firing in the brain, right? So you have all the senses, you know, you have wind, you have, you know, the sun might be beating down on you. So right away, you're starting to organize and, and, and take in different senses and make sense of that in your body. But it's also more challenging. If you're indoors, like even an ice arena is a good example, like everything's flat, and it's predictable. When you go on the pond, like it's, it's going to vary. It's going to it's definitely more challenging. Same with walking outside. It's, you know, the train is not even, um, I love to think about babies, like you even just crawling indoors, it's the same, you're putting the same input on in the same parts of the body. Every time you put them outside, they're constantly going to be stimulating different parts of the body and challenging themselves more. The other thing is we just talked about deep pressure, 
helps override that light touch sense. So they're walking on the dirt and they're also getting that deep pressure to integrate that light touch sense. So now they're going to tolerate getting dirty mm. from an early age. So there's so many benefits and they're scanning their environment. You got depth perception, right? They're looking at different things further indoors. There's only so far you can see. Mm-hmm. So there's there's so much more challenge and, and it's calming. The other mm-hmm. nice thing about being outdoors is calming colors, the bird sounds, the nature sounds is very calming. And the ideal state for sensory integration to happen is to be in a calm, but alert state of mind. So you're in this calm state of mind, but you're still alert, right? Because you might see an animal run by, you know, you're looking around your environment and that happens to be ideal for for Mm -hmm. sensory integration. It is interesting to think about the colors. There's less We've basically got the blues, the greens, the browns, and a little flit here and there, a flower or a bird. But a lot of these indoor play areas have a lot of bright colors. Even you talk about some of the offices, like for occupational therapies or school classrooms, there's bulletins and bright colors and red and yellow and blue and all these different things. That's coming from a sense of trying to serve the kid, but really it can be overwhelming. Yeah. So a lot of those environments, like, you know, thinking about what percentage of time are children in the environment, like we just just talked about nature, that's conducive to the organization of the brain, then what percentage are are they in an environment that's could be disorganizing, right? Or dysregulating. And that's exactly what you just mentioned is bright colors, or maybe even just being so close to other children. (laughs) Like sometimes like they're, you're so close, and that can be overstimulating to other children. The other problem is too many transitions, right? So a lot of school days are like switch, switch, switch. And when there's kids with sensory issues, they really have a hard time with constantly transitioning like that. So that time is important. That space we talked about is important and opportunity, you know, like just allowing for space to get away from other children, Mm -hmm. having plenty of time um, and that nature. Yeah, that nature piece is really important too. Wow. You talk about how therapeutic it is for kids to be outside. It's just really exceptional how much it does for our kids and for us. And so this book just continues to be one I go back to time and time again. What's changed? I mean, you wrote it probably, if it came out seven years ago, you probably wrote it eight years ago. What has changed? I mean, what's interesting is it just continues to be a book that's more and more valuable. Yeah, that's sort of what I see. Yeah. Is that what you see? Yeah, I I think it's one of those books that it's just, it's right. It's still relevant. It's very relevant. I think it's very, it's still very, very timely. And we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I think there's more stuff I'm learning that, that weren't in the book, you know, especially the social piece is really fascinating to me, probably because I have teenagers now. So mm-hmm. like, I'm starting to see the repercussions of that. I think that um, I think it's very relevant still. Mm-hmm. Like it, it becomes even more relevant. I think yeah. year after year, you're starting to see, like you talk about, and if people pick this book up, and like I said, the first time I read it, we weren't needing occupational therapy services. Our kids were still fairly young. And, yeah. you know, I skimmed through some of that piece of it mm-hmm. because I was reading it from the frame of a parent and right. looking for the information that applied to us at the time. But if you look at it just from the, I guess, the perspective of society, you see these declines and and they just have become more and more like you were talking about back in 2016 you're having a wait list of one year 
for kids needing occupational services. And now, you know, you're just hearing all about the anxiety and, and kids that are very young, yeah. three, four years old, they're prescribing medications and different types of things. So I think a book like this just becomes more and more relevant year after year because of the way that society's changed. It's called Balanced and Barefoot. I love the subtitle, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children, Teens Too, yeah. all the way throughout childhood. It is one of the best books I've ever read. I always recommend, like, this is when you give it a baby shower so someone can read it because you have a whole chapter on babies. Like, this first year of life is critical for them to get outside. Mm. There's so much in here, Angie. I can't even <laughs> going barefoot. The first year of life is one of the most critical times to get your kids outdoors. It's a whole chapter on babies. There's all about creativity. We didn't even talk about creativity. This is important in a world that's changing. We need to have creative kids and their cognition. So much is happening. So Angie, thank you. Thank you for writing a book that changed our lives. I mean, it changed our lives, the lives of my children, my own life. And one that I just, I talk about literally every time I talk about getting outside. This is the book I talk about, Balance in Barefoot. And one that, you know, every household should have a copy of it so that we can remind ourselves. I think it's hard to hold the line. Yeah. Even when you know all the stuff, like I know all the stuff and I still am like, Ooh, maybe we should be doing that foreign language program or maybe it's hard to hold the line. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time here. And thank you for the influence that you've had on so, so many families. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jenny. And thank you for the work you're doing too. And, you know, just making it so simple for families to, to do something and come together and support each other. It's invaluable. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.